How many times can you record your intro before you become ridiculous, even to yourself? I think the question that underpins the whole show, especially lately, is trying to come to some kind of conclusion around the quality of Australian poetry at the moment, what it is, what its distinctive qualities are. I think I'm trying to answer this question for myself, first and foremost, partially because I, my tendency is to look elsewhere at poetry. You know, I started the show when I was living in London, spent time in New York, got pretty enamored with those guys, and I can still regularly open up any anthology of Australian poetry and come across a name of somebody who I've never heard of. But what's exciting is I do feel like I am getting a bit closer to understanding what some of those distinctive qualities are. I feel like I do know some things, even if I don't know everything and will never know everything. And I feel like more and more I'm coming to a place where I, I am situated in a context, in a history, even, as I said a couple of episodes ago, as part of a lineage. This all kind of clicked in a particular way when I was talking the other week about Horace, of all subjects, with Matthew Buckley-Smith of Slee Ricketts. I think we did a really good job on that episode, Matthew. I think it was great. Uh, I don't often say that, but pretty happy with how it turned out. Recommend that you go and have a listen if you haven't already. But the start of the episode is basically Matthew grilling me about what what he has noticed listening to Poetry Says over the last year or so. And of course, as soon as he pointed it out, I realized, oh yes, that is very, very definitely a theme that I keep coming back to because that is something that is very important to me as a poet and as a poetry reader, but it's something I've never properly unpacked. And that is this tendency across Australian poetry to use levity, to use humor. And this is something that I don't see in the Americans who I read or in the British poets who I very, very occasionally read. (laughs) I hardly read any contemporary British poetry. Um, I'm not even sorry about it. It's this this levity, this quality of humour. It's not something that I think all Australian poets do all the time, but I think it might be something Australian poetry does in a very particular way for a very particular reason or a bunch of reasons. And look, while I was really happy with the conversation about Horace, I wasn't super happy with my characterization of this when I spoke to Matthew. So this is me sort of trying again to take a run at that. And also it's turned into a bit of a history lesson. Yeah. So I'm afraid I'm about to try to teach you something. Now let's see who's sitting in the front row. Simply because of the title, I'm always interested to see if we've got many men, and we don't have many, do we? But we do have you. What's your name, sir? So hopefully it's obvious that I'm using these three loose and lazy categories, American poetry, British poetry, Australian poetry, just as shorthands and with an awareness that they are just shorthands and they are very lazy and they don't 
capture everything, but hopefully they will be at least useful for today. We can just use them for now and then put them aside again. And each of those countries has their own poetry schools, strains, moments in poetry history, tendencies towards and away from certain things, flarings of various kinds, things that are there just for a moment and then die down. I'm going to lean on a distinction that I heard Mark Ford make. Um, he is, is a poet and editor. He writes for the London Review of Books and he and Seamus Perry put together another really great episode of the Close Readings podcast. This one they actually recorded live. So envious of the people who got to be there. Um, this was an episode about the wasteland and Mark Ford was also trying to come up with some kind of working definition of American poetry versus British poetry. And the way that he put it was, all American poetry is revolutionary. He said, to survive, it has to be revolutionary. And he also talks about how American writers like Eliot had to come to Europe because of the literary tradition that exists there. They had to make that pilgrimage. I think that in itself is interesting, right? Because we don't think that way today. I don't know many Australian poets who are like, ah, but I must go to London to immerse myself in the scene. Like, I, nobody says that. But I was thinking about that distinction, that idea of American poetry as having to be revolutionary. And I thought, you know, if we just limit it massively, narrow things right down and just talk about post-colonial Australian poetry, it could and maybe it should have that same revolutionary drive. Because after all, we are trying to get out from under trying to separate ourselves from the weight of that British poetic history. A great example of this is the group that was centred around Rex Ingemels, the Jindy Warabaks, all the way back in 1938. You know, they were saying, we have to stop writing like English people who are, for some reason, living in an alien land and using all these English tropes to describe what we're seeing. A good example of that would be the poetry of someone like Charles Harper. My Penguin Book of Australian Verse introduces Harper by saying, that the tradition of deliberate poetry starts with Charles Harper, there can be no doubt, which obviously erases tens of thousands of years of songlines and poetry history with a single sentence. But if you are Charles Harper, you are writing with Britain very present in your mind, and you're writing poems like this. This is A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest by Charles Harper. I'm just going to do the first stanza or so. Not a sound disturbs the air. There is quiet everywhere. Over plains and over woods, what a mighty stillness broods. All the birds and insects keep where the coolest shadows sleep. Even the busy ants are found resting in their pebbled mound. Even the locust clingeth now, silent to the barky bough. Over hills and over plains, quiet, vast and slumbrous reigns. Gosh, that sounds idyllic. So when someone like Rex Ingemels comes along, he wants to get so far away from this and the formulation he comes up with is, is to, to kind of create this school 
from his own mind, not not organically, just he's just going to make it happen. And he calls it the Jindy Warabaks. And he writes, the Jindy Warabaks are those individuals who are endeavouring to free Australian art from whatever alien influences trammel it. That is, to bring it into proper contact with its material. But when you look at the work itself, it sounds so much like Harper still. Listen to this. I found this uh, stack of these books. There must have been some kind of Jindy Warabax enthusiast um, who lived out near Warrandyte because the secondhand bookshop out there, which is, look, honestly, just just ridiculously overpriced, um, but happens to have some really good things in it. Um, they had this stack of books that are all by Jindy Warabak authors. And this this one is actually by Rex Ingemels. It's called News of the Sun. It's just like a little chapbook with one poem running through it. And yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound very different. Here, listen to this. The crickets fill the night with song. Dark is the bushland tree. The stars upon the billabong now make corroboree. Far in the land of Englishmen, 12,000 miles away, you urge me, write me, dip your pen in Australian night and day. Let memory have free reign to run on rugged tracks we know, by ranges shimmering in sun and rich with afterglow. Here, though you rest some evening beneath an oaken rafter, scrub-covered gullies ring to kookaburra laughter. So, I mean, he is... Uh, name-checking a bunch of Australian things, but he's still talking to England, to Englishmen. Um, it's a good try. So the Jindy Warabaks thing didn't really take. They were ridiculed by people like A.D. Hope back in Canberra. A couple of years later, 1942, which was the year just before he helped create the Mally hoax, which I think arguably we can say is one of the best jokes in all of Australian poetry, given that its legacy has far eclipsed the people who created it. But anyway, let's not get derailed by that. Um, the year before he helped create the Mally hoax, James Macaulay was writing like this. Yeah, so James Macaulay, born 1917. This is the first couple of stanzas of his poem, Terra Australis. Voyage within you on the fabled ocean, and you will find that southern continent. Quirus's vision, his Hidalgo heart, and mythical Australia, where reside all things in their imagined counterpart. It is your land of similes, the wattle scatters its pollen on the doubting heart. The flowers are wide awake, the air gives ease. There you come home, the magpies call you Jack, and whistle like larrikins at you from the trees. I don't know why, but I find this very funny. <laughs> what? The magpies are not going to call you anything, <laughs> for starters. I, I just find it's so, it's so serious. Um, mythical Australia, where reside all things in their imagined counterpart. Still talking to the English, still, still thinking of England. If we fast forward a bit and start to think about poetry in the early 1960s, we do start to get a few important small wins, I guess we can call them. We've got a writer like Gwen Harwood. 
She's still using a male pseudonym, but she manages to get In the Park published, which is a pretty radical poem for its time and honestly, I think even now. And then a couple of years later, we get Ujuru Nunakul's Municipal Gum. I'm going to read both of those too. So this is In the Park, published 1961 by Gwen Harwood, not under her own name. She sits in the park, her clothes are out of date. Two children whine and bicker, tug her skirt. A third draws aimless patterns in the dirt. Someone she loved once passed by, too late to feign indifference to that casual nod. How nice, etc. Time holds great surprises. From his neat head unquestionably rises a small balloon, but for the grace of God. They stand a while in flickering light, rehearsing the children's names and birthdays. It's so sweet to hear their chatter, watch them grow and thrive, she says, to his departing smile. Then, nursing the youngest child, sits staring at her feet. To the wind, she says, they have eaten me alive. And this is Municipal Gum, published at that time under the name Kath Walker. Gum tree in the city street, hard bitumen around your feet. Rather you should be in the cool world of leafy forest halls and wild bird calls. Here you seem to me like that poor cart horse, castrated, broken, a thing wronged, strapped and buckled, its hell prolonged, whose hung head and listless mien express its hopelessness. Municipal gum, it is dolorous to see you thus, set in your black grass of bitumen. Oh, fellow citizen, what have they done to us? So, yeah, we are starting to prize ourselves away from the English canon in some important ways in the 1960s. But then we get into the late 60s and into the 70s, and the Sydney poet John Tranter comes out with an anthology that he calls The New Australian Poetry in 1979. And that's where he brings together a whole bunch of poets who end up being called the Generation of 68. Thomas Shapcott reviewed the anthology in the ABR, and I really love the way that he summarizes what it's doing. Here's what he says. The emergence of young and energetically committed poets in 68-69 was dramatic, a landmark. Tranter is right to place this in its socio-political context. The introduction of combat and conscription in Vietnam was without precedent, and it forced on a generation of Australian youth, as it had in America, an immediate and profound questioning of the whole basis of their society. It was also a period of intense idealism. The flower people of the 1960s were the children's crusade of their time. The turning to drugs and a disaffiliation from imposed social values lie behind much of the youthful writing of this period. Most of the generation of 68 began writing as a result of these stimuli. Many were remarkably ignorant of what had been attempted or achieved in their own country. Their starting off point was the clean slate, or pioneering fervour, and echoes of this are strong throughout the volume. The most engaging quality that results is a willingness to take risks, to be vulnerable to whatever presents itself as being available for getting onto paper. 
We have been a notably timid culture, always, and this breakaway from bourgeois cautiousness is one of the best things to have happened in our writing. So I didn't quite know this before I read this Shapcott review, that it wasn't just that these poets were looking to New York. They weren't just looking at O'Hara and Ashbury and Coke and Barbara Guest and James Schuyler. They, they were basically just starting from scratch. I love how he says, many were remarkably ignorant of what had been attempted. So they're basically just dismissing everything that's happened up until this point. This kind of makes me love them even more. <laughs> Not all of the poets that were collected in the New Australian Poetry are still alive or still writing and not everyone that I think of as a generation of 68 person is actually in that anthology so like every label like the New York school it just does it doesn't really work but I think it's safe to say that it was a turning point because by the 80s and 90s these poets are writing poems that sound very very different for example Okay, I love this so much. This is um, from my Oxford Book of Modern Australian Verse, edited by Peter Porter. And this is a little nugget from Laurie Duggan. It's called Australia. I like the way we've been able to fuck things here as good as anywhere else in only half the time. That's it. That's the whole poem. <laughs> He is so bad. Okay, um, there's there's heaps of these. I mean, this is just like Infinity, Laurie Duggan, Treasure Trove. Um, this next one's called Drive Time. The new nationalism winks from its tracksuit and slips a few extra dollars into the hip pocket of the quiet achiever. Ah, oh, the quiet achiever. Yeah, great point. Great point, Laurie. Um, there's also a bunch of his epigrams of Marshall collected here. And yeah, this is probably one of the most precious books on my shelf. This um, little chat book published by Scripsy in 1989, where Laurie Duggan just, under the guise of translating Marshall or, or writing through Marshall, just has a go at, at just about everyone. Here's one of them. Dransfield, who wrote 200 poems each day, was wiser than his editor, who printed them. The next one. Gray's haiku, written on rice paper, wiped the dainty ass of his muse. I think this is my favourite one. John Forbes rents a decrepit flat a block from the tranter's lush terrace. So he eats and drinks from a well-stocked freezer and sleeps soundly on a broken mattress. Oof. Nasty. I wasn't going to do this, but I feel like he should have right of reply. <laughs> this is Admonition by John Forbes. Be still, my beating heart. And you, body. Don't go banging into that tree, the one that girl turned into back when the gods were like they are in the collected poems of A.D. Hope, and arms stop waving and legs don't dance as if an invisible band was playing a Fitzroy version of Picture This. Consider instead this cool Melbourne morning 
and the iconic self it suggests. The Laundromat, the review you haven't written yet, or choosing five dead certs for an all-up bet. And when they win, you blow the lot on bills and rent. That's grace enough this mild autumn day. So like I say, oh palpitations, go away. I had it in my mind that Pam Brown and Gig Ryan were included in this group, but neither of them are actually in the Tranter anthology. Transfield is, Robert Gray is not, Robert Adamson is, and it's not as if, I don't, I don't want to characterize that anthology as like, these are all um, poets who are just there for a laugh, just there for fun. The seriousness is still very much there in, in some of those poets, and then and it, it persists everywhere. Quiet, earnest, the, the quiet achiever poem, to borrow Laurie Duggan's term, is, is still everywhere. I was looking at the list of winners of the Kenneth Slesser Prize, and I don't think you could argue that a properly funny poet landed on that list until Pam Brown won in 2004. That was also the year that Laurie Duggan won the ALS gold medal for mangroves. Not that awards tell you much. That's not really the history that that matters. It matters who gets read, who keeps getting read, even on the tiny scale that poetry gets read at all. The poets who people actually enjoy hearing and reading, who, when you do get the chance to talk to someone about poetry... You look at each other and you say, oh, don't you just love that poem by, don't you just love that line where she says. Fast forward to now, fast forward to the 2010s, the 2020s. It took me about two minutes to go to my bookshelf and pull together a whole armload of books by poets who I think continue this willingness to take risks, as Shapcott puts it to be vulnerable to whatever presents itself as being available for getting onto paper. And my contention is that humour is part of that. It just has to be. If you are going to be that open, you are going to capture, you are going to get down on paper some real ridiculousness. And I think that is a very good thing. But I don't think it's the same thing as telling jokes. You just pointed to a woman, um, your wife, Anne. Oh, forgot your daughter. Whoops. Don't feel bad about that. I'm adopted. I know what that feeling's like. So, Michael, Anne, how long have you two been together? Oh, Michael, you've forgotten your daughter. You don't know how long you've been with Anne. And you look very tired. I've listened back to that so many times editing this and it gets me every single time. I love her. I love her so much. This is a really fine distinction I'm making here, though, because I don't actually think that poetry and comedy are very far apart at all. I love comedy. I think I love comedy almost as much as I love poetry. I sort of think of Bill Hicks as the first poet who I really got into. And this show that I'm stealing from here, which is called Judith Lucy versus Men, I saw at the Art Centre, I was in the front row, and it was 
by far the best show I saw that year and probably one of the best comedy shows I've ever seen. And she was talking about just one of the most painful relationship breakdowns I can imagine. Her partner of God knows how many years who came into her life, you know, pretty late in the game and who she adored um, just turned out to be taking her for a ride, stealing all her money, lying to her about a whole bunch of things and yeah, totally shattered her trust in everything and somehow she turned that into an hour of some of the funniest stand-up that, yeah, we we got to see that year or probably any year. You know, I, I respect Nanette, it's an important thing, but yeah, I prefer Judith Lucy. I still feel very proud that one night in a Sydney bar, a guy turned to me and said, you look just like Judith Lucy. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, what, what more could I ask for? She's a, she's a goddess. She's amazing. I think both comedy and poetry are life-sustaining forces. So it's really great when they come together But I think they do have different goals. Comedy fails if it doesn't make you laugh. Poetry can make you laugh. And it can also make you feel a whole bunch of other things. And it can be straight up funny. Sometimes the goal of a poem is just to amuse the audience at an open mic or to just get laughs. I think the thing that poetry can do and look, maybe, maybe stand-up does exactly the same thing. It just looks different when it does it. But what I love most is not when something is just straight-up funny, but when it's funny, heartbreaking. And when I think of the poets who I, who I admire most, they're using humour and levity to win people over, to hold their attention, to charm them. But they're not going so far into the comedy that they lose the credibility. And at the same time, they make sure they keep enough humour and levity in there that the poem isn't overburdened with its emotion. And I think we can all bring to mind poems like that, poems that Hector, when they think they're teaching, they whine when they think they're lamenting, or they're just so sincere without any self-awareness that they are just cringeworthy. When I was talking to Matthew about this off mic, I referred to it as the Forbesian tightrope. But obviously it's not all about him. It doesn't all come from him. It is a balancing act of sorts, though. And when I look back over the list of guests I've had on the show over the past couple of years, I can see a very definite bias towards poets who can do that balancing act or who are at least attempting to. Nick Powell talked about this. Luke Beasley is definitely going for this, I think. Michael Farrell would be someone who has perfected it. It's why I loved Lucy Van's The Open. It's why I get excited to read a poem by Liam Fernie. I was thinking too about Elena Gomez's book, Admit the Joyous Passion of Revolt, which um, I think the title already announces itself as I'm going to be doing this thing. This is a serious project I have, but I'm also going to have some humor and some levity while I do it. And, you know, this book, which 
I hope I'm wrong about this, but I I have this this feeling that maybe because it was a 2020 book, it didn't get quite the attention it really deserved. Um, you know, when I interviewed Eleanor, she talked about how her project is a Marxist feminist project. This is not where you would expect to find a whole bunch of humor. But when you look through the book, there is this lightness there. I really like this little section. The preoccupation with snacks over meals. IOW, snacks as portable and diverse. Snacks as a precariat food source. Or snacks as post-revolution family structure to replace the sturdy and historically stable meal. Snacks and their position in a hierarchy of nourishment. Are you standing all day or moving round? Are you a still sitter? Work for us. So I don't know, like to me, it is, it's zeroing in on this, this very precise thing about how we feed ourselves when we're so busy and we're not, we're not really given the space and time to look after ourselves properly. Uh, But, you know, a line like snacks as the precariat food source is just, that's just funny. Like snacks and their position in a hierarchy is it's silly but it is also saying something true and real melinda bufton would be somebody else who does this beautifully in every poem she writes it seems to be that she does it without even trying i looked back through her book super ed and um it's really hard to pick one but um but i really like this one damon Albarn's eyes What is it like to be a pair of pretty things, just balanced, like durable eggs, there in the paradigm of 21st century Bohemia? When we saw the northern lights, we were amazed. We stopped just being some things that people valued because of our pretty surfaces and started, you know, to have something to believe in. As eyes, people expect us not to have opinions or to be, you know, motivated by causes. There are a lot of shitty things going on in this universe, and we are lucky to be in a position to do something about it. I mean, otherwise, what is fame for? We look to other famous eyes, such as the eyes of Horace. This way, we are on track to our events. I spent the afternoon dating these out. I did a lot of incentivizing in those days. Yeah, I mean, celebrities who think that they are changing the world with their incredible privilege and wealth are ridiculous and that poem just puts it totally perfectly in a really weird structure by using this really weird conceit of Damon Albarn's eyes as being kind of like weirdly like sentient and and separate from his body having their own personality I also think this this tightrope or this balancing act is one of the reasons why Evelyn Araluen's Drop Bear works. You know, it's a it's a book with with huge things to say, and it's not as if it's laugh out loud funny, but it's like savage and biting. It couldn't have the same effect if it didn't use that very like sardonic humour. Think about Charles Harper's Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest, you know. The busy ants are found resting in their pebbled mound. Even the locust clingeth now in silence to the barky bough. Keep that poem in mind and then contrast it with this 
stanza from Evelyn Araluen's poem Index Australis. No law against that, no laws for nothing in the age of entitlement, in the decolonial Dundee. And well may we say, we will decide who and how. Well may we be not lectured, and well may we do it slowly. But Dal, this is a drama, not a document. You know, all those, all those phrases. Well may we say, God save the Queen. Proud record of welcoming people from 140 different nations. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Mr Prime Minister, if you are so confident about your view of fight back, why won't you call an early election? Using all that material, mixing it up and and serving it back and just sort of saying like, look at how stupid this stuff is. <laughs> you know, you, you have to laugh. You you have to laugh. I said I was going to try to teach you something. I don't think I've done that. I think, as usual, I've raised more questions than I've answered. I think what I have realized is that it's way too reductive and simplistic to say that the moment this all came together was with that generation of 68. Like That might have been the moment where it, it peaked or it was allowed to reach its full expression, but it seems likely to me that we were going to break away from... The, the heaviness, the, the weight of the British canon eventually, somehow. And if we did get some of it from the US um, by looking at the New York school, no matter how true that is, I think where we've landed is a place where we have, we've moved well past that. You know, we've, we've metabolized it. And what seems really amazing to me is that when you look at the US now, that levity doesn't seem to be there. Or at least I'm missing it. I don't feel like there is a successor to Ashbury or O'Hara or Kenneth Coke just yet. And even if there is, even if there is someone who is playing in that same way, I mean, maybe Ray Armentrout would be would be the person, or Laurie Niedeker. But yeah, I don't. I don't think we need to look to them. I think we can do this balancing act. I think we can walk the tightrope very, very easily. I guess the last question to try to answer is why does this even matter? Like, why does it matter to be funny? Why does levity matter? Why is humor important? And I, I think it's because it really is one of the best ways to get your point across and to be able to say whatever you want to whoever you want and to get away with it. And that is is about to become very important. Uh, as I found out yesterday, we are going to have a Poet Laureate of Australia. I'm sure everybody listening, if you are Australian, 
you probably have uh, your own pick as to who you would like it to be. I still think we should have more than one. I still wonder. I wonder about the pressure that would be on that person and what it would take to to hold that role. Like I said, in, in a country that is still, um, yeah, very fucked up in, in some very like fundamental ways, uh, especially around art. So what I would say about it is whoever... Albo chooses I really hope they've got a sense of humour Okay.